Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Uh, you brought us here. You put in our hearts to worship. You gave us songs to take our affections up to their heights. Uh, Lord, you are supernatural. We are natural. You are eternal. Yes, our bodies are mortal, but our souls are not. And in that way, we are knit with you. Yet you come to meet us with our earthly limitations. And you give us worship and song to, to actually, Lord, and not just enrich our hearts, but to prepare us in anticipation for what you have to say as you meet us with your Holy Spirit, your words of truth, planting them deep in our hearts, at the height of our affections from the worship you have just given to us, with attentive ears, eager to grow in Christ-likeness. Lord, only a good God would give that to us. And so we worship you for this, and we pray, Lord, that you would meet with all of us, with our backgrounds, our life circumstances, words of truth hitting us where we need. In your name we pray, amen. We will be in the book of 2 Samuel this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we will cover the whole chapter. And I want to begin, really, by explaining Here's an Old Testament text that gives us a picture. This is not going to be like an epistle where we have instruction and that. This is a picture. But a very clear picture of God and his goodness in really what we call the gospel. It's actually in line with the history of Israel, the history of King David, as the forerunner coming up to Christ, as if God wants to tell us something, more and more he wants to tell us. It's, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's birthday, anniversary. You want to tell them what you're giving. You know, oh, I want to tell I can't. <laughs> but I, so we give hints, you know, just to say it's coming Christmas is a big thing. Our kids, you know, get, it's coming around. Oh, I can't tell you. Since Genesis 3, that's what God does all the way until Christ comes. I, I just want to tell you. Uh-uh. And yet, what do we see in the Old Testament? What does the world see in the Old Testament? Oh, watch out for God. Watch out for God. Angry God. Got to obey all the time. Yep, what is he doing? I just, I just want to tell you, I'm, it's coming. Uh, uh. Oh. That's who God is. And just to give an idea here of why we're going into this text this morning, there's a concern that Satan is sowing seeds of perversion. I'll use that word, a strong word. Seeds of misdirection. And I want to be careful because it is so easy to sound self-righteous in a church like we are the church and all other people don't worship like we do. They don't have the same doctrine. It's, it's, I, I've learned up in Polokwane, formerly Petersburg, they changed names as I was coming there so I got a little confused of where we were going when we arrived and said, where am I supposed to be going? It <laughs> <They> changed names. <laughs> Before you buy the tickets to come and then you, you arrive, it's a different place. And to know that God is a God that gives us not just a simple way to get to heaven, but he's a God who gives. We read Romans 5, and I just just encourage you, go back on your time and just... 
Check and see how many times Paul writes, and how much more? Over and over and over again. Oh, not done yet. Oh, there's more. The first infomercial, just God saying, oh, you're not done yet. And then you get this, and then you get this, and then you get this. We are beset with what I would call a partial gospel. One of the things that has bothered me of late is, you know, you hear people say, oh, that's not a gospel preaching church. They really don't preach the gospel there. And it causes a little bit of division in churches. So I listen to something from one of those churches here and there, talk to the people, and I hear Jesus, and I hear sin, and I hear Christ, and the cross. I, I, I like, sounds to me like there's a gospel there, but, but there's something kind of off. What is it? And maybe we can point to various doctrines here and there, but it is really people give a kind of a thief on the cross gospel, which is today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, remember me when you come in your kingdom and then let's sing a bunch of songs and just what you get is today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, all, you, all we have to say in the gospel is just remember me, Lord. Well, okay, that's true for that guy, for what he knew. That's true, a historical event. But is that the gospel? Jesus died on the cross so that you can enter heaven. Is that the gospel? It's part of it. It's an effect of it. Is it what God did? Is he just a forgiving God says, you said the right things, I, okay, great, in. That's part of the gospel. But again, we read Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Anyone who would come after me must first deny himself. That's denying any, any goal that you have for your life. That's denying any treasure you have. That's denying yourself what you've always wanted. These are Jesus' words, not mine. You must deny yourself what yourself wants. Put it off the list. Get it out of there. And then, secondly, take up your cross. Luke says daily. We can all try to debate what that means, but it's pretty clear what they knew it meant. It meant be a criminal. It doesn't mean experience hardship. <laughs> you will certainly do that. Criminals experience hardship when they're convicted. Take up your cross. Have that kind of persecution. Have that kind of alienation from people who've loved you for a long time and now they split. Get ready for that. And thirdly, and come follow me, which means to come be with me where I'm at. Follow me doesn't mean, oh, I'm going to heaven. Jesus went to heaven. I'm going to heaven. No, that's not what that means. <laughs> you know what it meant, especially to Peter? In John chapter 21. Previously, you used to come and go wherever you wish, but soon in the future, someone will gird you and take you where you do not wish to go. Speaking of the manner of death, he was going to die. And what does Jesus say right after that? Follow me. Is that the gospel? That's the gospel. Wow. It means be all in. Be all in. Now that's from our standpoint what we do. And we're going to see that here this morning. Why we, why we would want to be all in. What people don't hear as often as they ought to hear is that's fine what we do. You can be the thief on the cross. In. You could be giving the, the 1689 Baptist Confession. <laughs> in. Both work. The question is, why do you want in? And the answer is, because of what God has done, has changed you to the point where this is what you, you are compelled to do. You, 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 people can't stop you. 
Because you understand what God has done. And there's something in particular we're going to learn in 2 Samuel chapter 9 of what God has done in the gospel. And I'll just say it's one word. It's a word, covenant. Covenant. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Our God has made a covenant. But what does it mean to be in a covenant? What does it mean? We think of Abraham's covenant. We think of... Okay, God made a promise, covenant, covenant stronger than promise. That's good. So he's a promise God. You don't understand. No, here, here, what, is it, what does it mean to be in covenant? Well, we get the picture right here. And this, I pray, would be something when you see this, you will see God in a completely different light. Because that's the intention of this here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I would just say it's, the, it's really the full gospel is what covenant is all about. Especially when you say, and, and look here at covenant, at the end of the covenant, what secured it? And you see that it's his son and the value of that to God. Gives us an entirely different way of thinking. Well, if, you're, if your Bibles are open, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. If they're, if they're open there and you've got it, we're ready to go. Let's read right here our text, 13 verses. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of this house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David went and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at the David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. As far as the reading of God's word this morning, and may he bless this reading here and the explanation that comes. As I said, this is... This is about something called covenant. What do you mean, pastor? I don't see covenant anywhere in here. I don't see things going on. It's entirely about covenant. Why is this passage here, 2 Samuel 9? This little passage of a discussion between David and a young man. Well, let's just begin to understand what this is about. And, and just to tell you where we're going to outline this, is you're going to see three pictures, really, of what covenant provides, mainly what God does in covenant. I really think that's what we want to do is, why, why do I care about covenant? Because you care about what God's doing. If you just say covenant, you think promise. Oh, he will do something, I'll get into heaven. Okay, so I wait to get into heaven to see if I'm there, and then okay, now he's covenant. Got it. Wrong. Covenant is about what God does for those who are in covenant. Big difference. 
And hopefully we'll be able to conclude by saying, so then how do we respond if we understand we're in covenant? Through the relationship between these two men here. Let's take a look. What's our first picture? Well, let's take a look at the text and see why do we get this. First, then David said, is there yet anyone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Why would David just start court? Here's court. People all lined up. David's on the throne. There we go. We're moving. He has just really taken the kingdom. He's taken the kingdom. Well, we know from 1 Samuel, all on, Saul was king, right? And Saul's firstborn was Jonathan. So he's got that ready to go. But at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and Jonathan dead. David's best friend, we know, and they mourned and so forth. Now David's trying to figure out what to do. So after a couple of chapters, he has some battles with Saul's other sons and who's going to be in charge of the kingdom. They had some battles. David's emerging victorious. And we know from just right before 2 Samuel 9 and chapter 8, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Verse 1. Defeated Moab. Verse 2. Defeated Hedadazar, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. Verse 3. Verses 4 and beyond, he captures 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, hamstrings the chariot horses, keeps the chariots. And then verse 5, when the Arameans of Damascus come over to help the guy, David kills 22,000 of them. Now, not David, but David's armies. David takes the shields of gold, carries them into Jerusalem, starts to make alliances. A guy named Toy in verse 10 goes to meet David because he killed his enemy. And so now David's dedicating all these trophies to the Lord, verse 11. And he's subdued from the nations which he had subdued. Verse 12, we get the report. Aram, Moab, sons of Ammon, Philistines, Amalek, from the spoil of Hadadazar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. He takes it all, undefeated made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He puts his own garrisons in Edom, that's south, and so he's ruling everywhere. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. That's where we are. David is firmly in charge. No threat anywhere. And then you get this right here. What in the world is this? Well, I will help you understand verse 1. Is there not yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Notice here two observations. The word kindness, throughout this passage, you'll see it switch from kindness to loving kindness. Okay? Loving kindness... And it even goes, he explains it as the loving kindness of God, is a Hebrew word called chesed. You need to become familiar with that word. I'm sure Denver's got you clued up on that. That's like the agape word in the New Testament, Greek. But it's the, the, the word for unconditional love in the Hebrew. It's a unique love, a particular kind of love. David uses it here. The kindness, the loving kindness, chesed, that comes from God, but for Jonathan's sake. Now, why is he trying to just say, I'll dedicate somebody for Jonathan just to, to honor the dead and let's keep moving? No. We will find when you briefly turn to 1 Samuel 18, I want you to see something. Our first little bit is getting a little bit of context to help us here because it helps open up the whole of Scripture for us. 1 Samuel 18, David just killed Goliath. Now, we all know that story. Seventh in line. So he was the Lot Lamaki, so to speak. David comes with a slingshot, knocks Goliath in the head, falls down, and then he cuts his head off with a sword. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about when he'd finished speaking to Saul, that is David speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Do you catch that? 
I'd focus on those words for a second. Jonathan is the heir apparent. His is the kingdom. And he comes to David and a man who is twice the age of David knits his soul to David. Knitting. It's the exact word. You tie it together. Undone. You can't, you can't, can't undo it. Jonathan did that. Now, why would he do that? Well, Jonathan loved him as himself. I loved him more than me getting the kingdom. I think what you can see here is pretty obvious, and I don't want to go into all of Scripture to prove it, but he saw David as a man after God's own heart. So he jumped into him and said, Man, I am you, and you are me, and we are together. We see it in 1 Samuel 13 and 15 when God tells Saul he's got a man after his own heart coming. We see it in 1 Samuel 23 when David and Jonathan were together trying to sort out, is, is David going to be able to live under, under Saul? And they had a little trick that they planned where they, Jonathan's going to shoot an arrow long if it's, if it's dangerous and short, if it's, if it's safe. Realize Saul's going to kill David, so they come together and they wept. They wept. And it's interesting that David and Jonathan wept, but it says, but David wept the more. Now here's what I want you to see. <laughs> David wept the more. So we read that and we think, oh man, David, oh, he's such a great guy because he's weeping. Really? He wept more because he lost more. Ooh, that, that kind of turns that around on us, doesn't it? David wept the more because Jonathan, the son of the king, had knit his soul to David and gave everything to David and said, we're together. And in 1 Samuel 23, he came to David when David was hiding from Saul in the, in the wilderness of Ziph. And, and Jonathan came to him and just said, you know what? You will be king and I will be next to you. That's the kind of man Jonathan was. He knit his soul to this young, clanky David. And he loved him as himself. So Saul took him. He took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a what? There it is right there. Made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, when you do a covenant, the Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah, and it tells us also in the book of Genesis, a covenant... A real covenant is when you take an animal and you cut it in two. And you get two rocks, put them, put them together, and you put a piece of the animal over here and a piece of the animal over here. So you have literally two pieces of animals, of the same animal, on two rocks. They're not going to bry. they got it right there. And both men are going to walk like in a figure eight between the pieces. And they walk between the pieces and they say, May God do to me what I've done to this animal if I break this covenant. That's what a covenant is. Jeremiah talks about the people cutting a calf and walking between the pieces. That's what they did. And they exchanged, verse 4, they exchanged their clothes, their robes, and their armor, and their swords. They exchanged swords. I am you, you are me. They did that. Just a couple chapters further, in verse 20, chapter 20, that covenant is renewed and more detail is applied to it. 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, where Jonathan is talking, he's telling David, you shall not cut off your loving kindness, chesed, from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Very interesting phrase there. Not even when the Lord wipes out David's enemies from the face of the earth. When that happens, you shall not remove your loving kindness from me and my house. You see those words up there in verse 15? My house. This is not between David and Jonathan. It's now between David and Jonathan and Jonathan's house. 
So verse 16, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. That took place. That took place. But there's something else that took place. 2 Samuel 7. Just to give a verse here, we know this. It's called the Davidic Covenant. It's when God made a covenant with David. David went to Nathan and said, I want to build a house for God. Nathan said, sounds like a good idea to me. So just as David gets ready to go, God talks to Nathan the prophet that night. He says, whoa, what are you doing here? Whoa, what are you doing? No, no, no. You're not going to build a house for me. That's not going to happen. I'm going to build a house for you. And he goes on and explains that his kingdom will last forever. And he says, in verse 16 of chapter 7, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a covenant that God made with David now. Made a covenant with David. The king is going to come from you. The ultimate Messiah, the Christ, is coming from you. That was the question that the Pharisees, Sadducees asked Jesus just before his crucifixion. Actually, they, Jesus asked them. After they asked him the question about, should we pay taxes or not? What about the guy who had, the, the woman who had seven husbands and whose husband did she get in heaven? And goes through all those nonsense questions. And Jesus says, well, I got one question for you. <laughs> just one question. The Christ, whose son is he? They said, David, obviously. Son of David. That's what they talk about Jesus coming in right there. So he says, so how is it that David says in the spirit in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yahweh said to my Lord. How does he call his son Lord. And they all turned around and ran away. That's the covenant here in 2 Samuel 7. David was hit face to face with God, 2 Samuel 7, covenant by God with David. Here we go. David's enemies are just now wiped out from the face of the earth. What's on David's mind? Hey, I just got all my enemies wiped out. We can start taking land. We'll start farming over there. Let's start, let's, let's go way beyond the West Bank. Let's go all off into Damascus. Let's, let's expand. Does he do that? What's the first thing on his mind as he has court here in chapter 9? All the enemies are gone. New world order. Here we go. First thing on his mind. Is there yet anyone of the house of Saul that I can show him kindness? Why? For Jonathan's sake. What does Jonathan's sake mean? I have a covenant to fulfill. I got a covenant to fulfill. And I'm looking. I'm looking. Looking. Is there somebody? Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the David said to him, uh, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. Oh boy, Ziba. I bet he was pumped at this time. <laughs> I'm going to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Ziba's trying to say, Don't anybody tell that I used to work for Saul. Okay? We don't need that. New identity, new papers, everything, you know, shaved his beard, did all kinds of stuff. All that stuff. But as soon as he hears verse 1, there was a servant named Ziba, and they called him to David. Hey, aren't you Ziba? You're, you're Ziba. I guess now it's okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I was looking for the door before, but now it's okay. I'm your servant. Here you go. Verse 3. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Notice the kindness of God now. Chesed of God. And Ziba said to the king, yeah, there still is. There's still a son of Jonathan. That's what David's looking for. He's not looking for a servant of Saul. He's looking for Jonathan's son. Yeah, there's still a son of Jonathan. Oh, by the way, David, you need to know he's crippled in both feet. 
Do you see that there? That's going to come up again. Crippled in both feet comes up a few times, more than a few times. Zeba's like, oof. You know, I thought I was going to get that. I, I don't watch this show, but I've heard about it. Like, what's that? The, the, who's got talent? Don't they have a gold buzzer or something? You know, and you, you sing the great song, and hit the boo, first place, you win, kind of deal. He was hoping for that, you know. Zeba in, boo, done, you're in, come. But it was like, okay, Zeba, you stand right over here. Is there anybody else? Zeba's like, mm. anybody else? Zeba said, yeah, yeah, there's one. <laughs> there is one. There's one. You know, he's the son of Jonathan, who is probably looking for the throne, by the way. And he can't walk. But, you know, I'm just saying. Just saying. So the king said to him, Where is he? Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar, of all places. Lodabar. Well, I give my one crack here to be with you guys. And I tend to be a Hebrew guy. I taught Hebrew for a long time. So you've noticed in the Bible hour now, I, I throw some Hebrew around a little bit here and there. But Hebrew is a picture language. It's not like a real grammar thing. It's just great pictures. I'll give you a picture here. The, the word for glory in Hebrew is kabod. And you, you know what that means? It means heavy. Now, in, in Greek, doxa, where we get doxology, you think of fireworks, hey, man, it's bright, glorious, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, shiny, let's go over there. It's great, glory, glory, glory. Hey. Yeah, that's Greek. They loved the theater, so they had everything special effects. They were the first Pixar. They, boom, they come out. Hebrews didn't think that way. Hebrews thought heavy. Why? I'll tell you what, you know, on any particular day, when God rocks up and 186,000 Assyrians drop dead, life's pretty exciting. You don't need to say, let's go to the movies. When you're a Jew in Jerusalem, I tell you what, you're not looking for stuff to do. You got that, especially in Moses' day, you got that, you got that tent, and it's just, gl- it's just glowing like that. You're like, okay. You don't get real excited about other people and their entertaining stuff. It's God. So that's Hebrew, right? Lodabar. What does Lodabar mean? It means no place. That's what it means. We actually have a town similar to this right out of Polokwane. You start going towards Zanin, take a left, you got a place called Nobody. So you confuse people, they visit, they come and drive, and you go, hey, look, there's nobody. Well, I don't, yeah, there's nobody. Right, come on, right to look, it's nobody. Yeah, no place. Crippled in both feet, no place. That's what Zeba wants David to know. Crippled in both feet, by the way, king, and he's living in no place. Verse 5, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. What does David say? Go and get him. Doors wide open, boom, like that. And out go about eight soldiers to get in the chariots, and you hear them go, boom, they go the, the horses. And they're, I mean, they're moving. David's focused here. This is all like shouting terms here. He's, he's, the court's going on, and he says, I don't care about the law. I don't care about what we own. Go get him. What do we learn here from this first set for these first five verses? I'll tell you what covenant is about. What does David do in covenant? You know what? He pursues with a fury. He pursues those whom he is in covenant with with a fury. And I want to give you this picture of fury because it, in Romans 1, the wrath of God is now revealed. And we think of wrath, and that, that, is a, that is a word with fury, isn't it? Unbridled passion is what the word means. I just want you to know that the opposite of wrath, hatred, anger, is not love. That is not the opposite. Those actually are twins. 
It's the same exact emotional expression with a little different outcome at the very end. Are you a Babylonian chasing a Jewish kid to just cut him in half and, and drop him over a cliff? Or are you the father coming after him? As soon as you get him, you grab him, you throw him in the air and catch him and say, man, let's go get ice cream. Either way, you're chasing, aren't you? The opposite of love, the opposite of hatred is apathy. Apathy. <laughs> Unbridled passion says, you will go, and I know the time it takes to get to Lodabar and back. I'll give you five minutes grace in between. Anyway, otherwise, you're back here. He pursues with a fury those whom he's in covenant with. He didn't pursue Ziba. Stand over, keep standing over there, Ziba. It's fine. You're okay. You stand over there. In Africa, we're surprised at how the rest of the world thinks, but, but we understand animals, don't we? We understand animals. Kruger Park. It took me a while before I understood. And, and it had to be where I learned from some other missionaries who were here before me. They were in Kruger Park. And in Kruger, when you're looking at elephants, I definitely learned this. I'm not worried so much about the lions. Lions are okay. You're in a thing and you can go, the lions are down there and they, they're kind of looking at you funny. Elephants, you notice any African, two rules, keep the car in gear and the engine running, and the other rule is make sure there's space. Right? <laughs> to do so, otherwise, like, stay away from those people. It doesn't matter. Well, that, the African was driving, fortunately. And so you got the car still in first, ready to go, and the foot's on the clutch and so forth. Okay, well, there's elephants, and they're coming up close. Oh, they're close. Well, the American missionary takes and he goes, great. He took a handful of peanuts. There's a window down. And he throws them at the elephant. Hey, you know. Well, all of a sudden, you know, here they come. And it's, here they come. And the car's going off. And he's got his head to it. He says, look, they're following us. <laughs> Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy... Shall what? <laughs> and nobody wants to relook at that translation because it came from the good old King James from back then. They will follow. It's not follow. It's the Hebrew word radaf, which means to pursue. Goodness and mercy will chase you and hound you until he takes you home. When you are a covenant God. You will pursue with a fury those whom you're in covenant with. Covenant people break their covenants. A covenant God? No. This is David, the forerunner of Christ, understands covenant. Why does he understand it? He was just given a covenant by God. You don't break covenant, especially with God. You don't do that. He, that's his covenant. I need to be who God is. Now I'm going to act that way here. This is a picture of him pursuing one whom he's made a covenant with, Jonathan. And all who are Jonathan's. Why? Because Jonathan knit his soul to David. Pursues. What's the second thing we see? Verse 9. Or verse 6, I'm sorry. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. Wow, what time. What time? Soldiers come, rocking up. Here he is. Gates open, the doors open. Boom. Everybody, you, you can hear a pin drop. It's like, David is going to take this kid out. Why are they thinking that? I'll tell you why they're thinking that. We're going to see two places, right here in Samuel. 2 Samuel verse 4. Let's find out why he was crippled in both feet. You find one of these Hebrew verses stuck there in the Old Testament, come out of there for nothing. Why? To support what's going on in chapter 9. 2 Samuel 4 verse 4. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. 
And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Interesting, that verse out of nowhere. Why would you tell us about that in the middle of Ishbosheth getting murdered in chapter 4? All the actions with Ishbosheth. And out of nowhere, it's like one of those scenes in the movie says, Meanwhile, whoosh, you're over here. And, and, you, and you got this, this nurse said, oh, we got to go, we got to go. What do you mean we got to go? We got to go because David's on the run. He's coming. Why? Because he's angry and he's going to take us out. What's the image of God in the world? We got to get out of here because he's going to take us out. What's the image of Christians who don't have a full gospel? Ooh, I know what I did last week or the week before. He's going to take me out. So with wrong information, David's a man of blood coming after Saul's family, not knowing of the covenant. She grabs him and starts to run and drops him and breaks both ankles. Because she, and Mephibosheth is only five, he doesn't know, are thinking the king, the one in charge, he's coming for you because you're against him. And in the haste, drops him. That's why he broke his feet. And then you go to chapter 5. When David is on the march to take over Jerusalem. And he's going to capture Jerusalem. And so he's fighting these people called the Jebusites. And in verse 6, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away. Thinking David can't get in here. So they talk trash. They're talking trash. They did that back then. <laughs> Our guys on crutches, they'll take care of you. Wheelchairs up front. Nevertheless, verse 7 says, David captured the stronghold of Zion that is the city of David. Now get this in verse 8. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. You see, there is now, you know, it's never what the guy says. It's what social media says, and then the media, and then that's because, and you're labeled. I'm sorry. You didn't really say it, but that's what everybody else says. Now it's stuck. David's reputation, he hates those who are crippled, handicapped, weak, can't take on a lion or a bear. He only likes warriors. He hates, they're hated by David's soul. That's what they say. Why do you think Zeba said it there in the, in the second verse, third verse? Why do you think Zeba said, oh, he's crippled on both feet? <laughs> we'll take care of that one, and I've got it. Doors open. Here comes Mephibosheth. Broken on both feet. Maybe he's walking with sticks. We don't know. He, he probably had something. He's trying to walk, and he's got his ankles, and he, you know, he's, he's doing this. We know what that looks like, right? Today's society. They're waiting, gasping, as he slowly is coming. And as he's coming down, they're looking at the king, looking at him. Now, the king is, is sitting on the chair. Now, I know I'm kind of painting a picture that's not in the text, but if you understand all this history, this is, this is what humans would do, right? This is what the king would do. But knowing the covenant, the king's there, and as, the, as he's walking down, and boy, he, he, is, he is terrified because now the soldiers have got him. Where are we going? King demands you. Oh, Are we going to Jerusalem? Quiet. No matter what he says, quiet, or I'll make you be quiet. You know how soldiers are. I don't want to hear it. They're driving in. They don't know. Soldiers don't know. Take them up. And they probably didn't carry him in. They flock. Load a bar, man. Doors open. Then the crowd looks up at the king. The king's sitting on his chair. And he sees him coming. What does the king do? He sits up in his chair a little bit. He's looking. He's looking. He's coming. And what does he see? A smile. A smile. Because as he's walking, what does he see? What does he see? 
Does he see Lodabar man? What does he see? The crippled, the lame, crippled, the lame. What does he see? He looks at Jonathan. 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 He almost wants to get up and help, but he knows he's a king. He's a king. He has dignity. You know, the king's coming. And look what the king says in verse 7. David said to him, the very thing Christ says to Peter in the boat, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Same thing Jesus said to the three on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus turned into a human phosphorus bomb right there on the mountain in front of him and everything glowed from the inside out and boom, there he is like that. And then, then they kind of look up and the cloud goes away. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. What is Jesus' words? Do not fear. That's what he says right there. Do not fear. For I will surely show kindness to you. I'll do this for Denver's sake and whoever's going to be taking Hebrew come up. That's called a hippil, or it's called an infinitive absolute, which is, I'm going to show you a showing. Okay? That's what it literally means. I double it up to show you how important it is. I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore you to the land all your grandfather saw and you shall eat at my table. How? Regularly. Continually, your Bibles might say. I'm sorry, he doesn't eat over there. He eats here. In America, we've got a holiday called Thanksgiving. Happens the fourth Thursday of November. Big deal. Celebrate origin of the country, all that. Everybody have a big meal. The goal is to stuff yourself to where you're in pain, and then you go and you hibernate for a couple of days. And when all the families gather, aunties, uncles, everybody come, there they are. The problem is there's only a table big enough for the adults. That's the problem. So basically, you got to set up one or two clanky toffles, right? you got to have the little kids' table. There they are. And you know that problem when you get to be 16, 17, 18, 19? When you just don't make it quite to the adult table. And you're the oldest kid in the little kid's table. It's the worst. It's like the worst. It's great if you're a little kid, but as long as you're the oldest there, it is just torture. You will eat at my table. My table. From now on, continually. Psalm 23. I will sit you at my table in the presence of your enemies. My table. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead log like me? Interesting. His, his thing is like, oh, great. No, no, no. I do not deserve it at all. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce, and your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. There it is. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Plenty of people to work the land for my covenant son here. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands a servant to your servant will, so servant your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Now, not only regularly, but what? As one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah or Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table. There we go again. Regularly, continually. Oh, just so you know, now he was lame in both feet. Just so you know that, right? So what's the second thing God does here? He provides and provides and provides everything you need. I just mentioned Bible Hour. You know what? I, I, I don't believe in what they call the prosperity gospel, but I believe God is a God of, who believes in prospering his people. So he gives us his church to take care of each other, family, all around the world. Who took care of people when the plagues 
hit the Roman Empire all throughout. Bubonic plague hit Europe. Who took care? The churches. Who put in the first hospitals? Churches. Who put in the first schools? Churches. Who prospered this whole earth this last two, three, four hundred years? The Reformation churches. God is about providing to eat at his table regularly. That's what a covenant is. His table. Provide, provide, provide. You know when David sat next to Mephibosheth at the table? He was lame in both feet. <laughs> we know so because the writer couldn't keep talking about it. <laughs> Do you think they talked about his feet at all? Do you think they talked about how difficult it was to get seated at the table at all? What do you think they talked about? I know we're speculating here and I'm trying to get that. But part of, I guess this is where I depart from Bible teaching and go a little bit to exhortation. <laughs> and say, what do you think they talked about? I'll tell you what I think they talked about. I think they both talked about Jonathan. How was he as a father? How was he as a friend? I bet those conversations just went on and on and on to talk about the one who was knit to David's soul. And you are Jonathan to me. I would just say, I look here, and I see this, and all I can think of is, boy, am I Mephibosheth. Have you ever seen yourself as Mephibosheth? Have you ever seen, maybe you've complained about your feet being broken? Or that you were lived in, or raised in, or born in the wrong place? Lodabar? You ever seen yourself there? What does the covenant God do? Does he care about Lodabar? Does he care about crippled feet? I don't think so. Don't think so. Now lastly, last point, is actually not found here, but it's found between these two men. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 21. Because there was a covenant made to say, I'm going I'm to pursue, and I'm going to grab you, and I'm going to provide for you. But in 2 Samuel 21, something else happens. Something else happens. 21 verse 1. There was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, year after year, famine. Three years, famine. And David sought the presence of the Lord. The Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, why is that a problem? I'll tell you why it's a problem. Back in Joshua, they're trying to get into the land. They're moving along. And here come these stinking Gibeonites from the land. Canaanites. But they were clever. They come to Joshua and the elders and they made sure they got the oldest, stinkiest sandals. They took the oldest bread that had been crumbling, threw it in their bags. They came to Joshua. They said, oh, we've come from far away. We're not from this area. By the way, do you know the way to the nearest water? We don't understand this place here at all. They're convincing them that they're from someplace else. But we heard how great you guys are. you got a big God and you crossed over the Red Sea on Hayabashah, man, you were, you guys were, okay, we're, we're with you guys. They looked at the bread, tasted it, saw the sandals. I guess it's safe, so they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. Joshua and Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites and said, from now on, we will protect you, but you will be carriers of wood and water. You don't get good jobs, but we protect you forever. Well, what was the problem? Because Saul and his bloody house put the Gibeonites to death in one of Saul's bloody rampages. So what did God do? You break covenant like that, poof, no food. So the king calls the Gibeonites in verse 2 and speaks to them and says, uh, what do you want? 
Verse 3, what do I do for you? How can I make atonement for this? Give me nights in verse 4. We have no concern for silver or gold with Saul or his house. David says, I'll do for you whatever you say. Verse 5, so they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining with any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us and we will hang them before the Lord and give me of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Remember, this is after 2 Samuel 9. Long into it, David's got this deal. And notice verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. You don't get him. God protects all of his people who are in covenant with him until he takes them home to be with him. You are immune from anything happening unless it's the Lord saying, this is the time I gave you before you were born. Come, I want to be with you now and eat together at the table. Until that time, God's saying, nobody's going to touch you to the point that I'm not helping you, showing you who I am. And to give you one, one picture of this, this is just a picture. I, I, I think this is so good, I want to give it to you because I'm only here today and then, then I'm gone. Whew, you know, lo, he was no more kind of thing. And, and so in, in Hebrews 12, don't have to turn there, I'm just tell you. Hebrews 12, you can look it up. He's talking about discipline, fathers dis- disciplining sons. And fathers discipline us for our good, but he disciplines us. I, 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 he says, Fathers discipline their sons as seems good to them. As seems good to them. Like good dads do. But he, he disciplines us how? For our good. For our good. Why? So that we may share his holiness. Now what does that mean? Sharing his holiness. I'll tell you what holiness, sharing holiness means. What it means is, yes, obedience. Does that mean he's going to discipline us until we get it right? Boy, that doesn't sound like chesed to me. Just, are we going to obey? Sure. But is that the reason? It's because we need to understand fully the word holiness. Sanctification. We think it's being separate from sin. And it is. It is. I'm not saying it's not. But God was holy before he created the earth. Right? Jesus was holy before he created the earth. Well, how could they be holy if there's nothing to be separate apart from? If there's no sin, there's no creatures, there's no creation, what am I wholly separate from? Answer, nothing. So how am I holy? Because the other side of holiness is devotion to. You don't just stop drinking and still defy God. What is that? Are you, are you holy now? <laughs> Not a chance. It's devotion to. God was devoted to his son. His son was devoted to his father and they both locked eyes with each other. And I mean, they were laser beams looking at each other with love back and forth, back and forth continually. And now now let's create the world. It's the picture God gives us in marriage. When you you have marriage, y'all love going to a wedding and you're looking for one thing. Comes at the end. Do you know what it is? Sure you do. You know, the girls really know this, I think. You may now. (laughs) We're waiting for it, right? Yeah, the sermon, that's why we don't want the sermon to be too long. A few songs, I'll pull up with that, but get to the point. Here we go. Everybody sitting there watching the wedding is safe. The pastor is not safe. Why? Because you may not, okay. What are you doing here, Pastor? You don't belong here. This is our time, our moment. So when I say, you know, you may not kiss the bride, it's like, okay, here we go. I'm getting out of that distance. Why? Because two eyes are locking in on each other and nobody else better be there. That's exactly what happens. 
What does sharing his holiness mean? It means God wants to lock eyes with you, is what it means. And you know what? When you're locking eyes with God, you're not thinking about sins that you've stumbled over in the past. Not at all. You're not thinking about these things of broken feet and living in Lodabar. You're not thinking about that. You're thinking about what? I'm locking eyes and I can't let this go. He disciplines you. Why? Why does sometimes God take things from you? Why does God make you not eat at his table sometimes from you? Why? Because he's saying, I want you to lock eyes. Because you'll never forget it and you'll never regret it. That is what God wants. And he provides. What happens when it's not being provided for? He's working on locking eyes with you. That's why prosperity can be so... It is deceitful. What's our response? Knowing that God is a covenant-keeping God who in the gospel, he pursues those he's after. Those whom Christ has redeemed. Those whom Christ has bought and paid for. Those whom Christ died for. He is chasing. And then he is going to be providing for them. And he is protecting them. What's our response? Actually, Mephibosheth gets it in 2 Samuel 19. It's right here. Mephibosheth was sinned against. Ziba, remember him? (laughs) He didn't forget. He didn't forget. In 2 Samuel 19, what we know is that David was chased out of Jerusalem by his son, Absalom. Now Absalom's dead. He's coming back. Well, when David was going out of Jerusalem, here comes Ziba. Oh, king, I'm your man. You know, here's fruit and this and that and the other thing. And you're going to go live well. I'm with you, man. David said, where's Mephibosheth? Oh, you know, that guy, he's all about Saul, you know. Could never stop him talking about Saul. He stayed here. He he didn't want to come out here and show his face to you. This is Ziba talking. But I got all this food for you. David crosses over. Now David's coming back. Mephibosheth was sinned against badly. Verse 24. Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. He stayed and never took care of himself because the king is gone, and he is just in Torment. He is, he is just defeated. He's, uh, what can I do? In verse 25, it was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, O oh, my lord, the king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is right in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before the Lord your king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain anymore to the king? I don't care about what you gave me. When you said I could eat at your table regularly, that's enough for me. That's what he said. He could have fought for his rights. He just said, you know what? It's enough to be with you. Now, this is not an exact parallel. David acts exactly like God, and it's not, that's not the point. The point is we're looking at this relationship here in the Old Testament between David and Mephibosheth, who had a covenant with Jonathan. How did he behave? How does God behave? Read Psalm 23. Verse 3, I will take you, and I, I, I will lead you in paths of righteousness. Notice the plural, paths, more than one path, of righteousness. There's not just one path. Multiple paths every day of righteousness. And what's, what's verse 4 say, the very next verse? I like the king. Yay! Yeah. Though you walk, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. That is a path of righteousness. The path of death. The path of despair. The path of watching a loved one die. That's a path of righteousness. How are you going to walk it? How are you going to walk it? If you don't know about your covenant-keeping father and how he has pursued, provided for, and protected you, if you don't know that, you can begin to now mourn and act like the Gentiles. But if you understand that, this is the path of righteousness that actually is disciplining me so for my good so that I will share his holiness. And he's going to lock eyes with me right now. The times of greatest despair are the times when he wants to lock eyes. And get your mind off of your feet and off of where you come from, where you lived, how you were raised. Everything's unfair. Get off of that. This is who he is. Right here. That is a full gospel. That says if you know that about your God, your Father, how do gospel people live and walk? Very different than saying, I trust Christ in a thing, and yeah, I want to be forgiven, go to heaven. That's a start. But how are you going to be able to handle life without this? That's what the Lord has in store for us today. So I know he took time for it, but we learned a lot about parts of Samuel now and the whole thing. Just pray that he would put this deep in our hearts and our minds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This is such a great picture from an earthly standpoint of who you are, knowing that you've been so faithful to Israel to give them a king who's a man after your own heart so we can see that so the greater David comes in Jesus Christ who actually gave himself so that we could eat at your table regularly. Suffered, died. We sang many songs because he trusted in you as a loving son who loved his father, trusting you that you would be so good that you would raise him from the dead. So the book of Isaiah tells us that he will see his offspring. And Paul writes in Romans that he will become the firstborn among many brethren. So that all Rejoice in the glory of God in what the Father and the Son and the Spirit have done in salvation. Lord, we commit this to you. Thank you for this church and your goodness to us. In Christ's name, amen.